Welcome to Mix Understood, where we explore identity, the meaning of the word race, and talk about the multicultural and multiracial experience with stories from our own lives. I'm Hannah Lee. I'm Amy. And in today's episode, we continue to explore the topic of multiracial actors in the entertainment industry. We also have a special guest for this show who can talk about things from her perspective, our manager. Yes, we have the same manager, Matilda Comos. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I think Australians still don't quite place me as Australian. British people don't think I'm British and I definitely don't look Sudanese, so. I feel like as much progress as we make, we also still kind of paint certain cultures under one brush. When I was like 18 and starting out, or maybe a little bit older, I remember, they wanted ambiguous, mm -hmm. they wanted somebody to look like they could belong anywhere. And I was so desperately like, you know, I wanted to work, I was excited to get out into the world. I was like, yeah, I can I can fit any anywhere, anywhere. Before we dive into this episode, it's important for us to say that we are here to offer up stories, ideas and various theories for you to consider and decide for yourself in light of your own knowledge and experience. Exactly. We hope to explore, learn and grow together with you. We are not professing to have any of the answers. Our aim is to start conversations around these topics. A little bit about Matilda. She started out as a promotions and digital editor at Universal Music Group Australia. After that, she was the marketing director of Australians in Film, where she ran the Heath Ledger Scholarship and various other scholarships. She then got into producing and, among other things, co produced with Australians in Film the LA version of the AFI ACTA Awards Show, which is the Australian Academy of Cinema and Television Arts, basically the Australian Oscars. And in 2016, she founded the talent management and production company Fictious alongside partner Will Howarth. Um, fun facts about Matilda. So you've lived in five cities and three countries. You almost became a nun. More about that later. And you're a vegan with the exception of the fact that you love cheese. It's not that great for you. It's not yeah. something no. we should be eating in large quantities, but it is absolutely delicious. So. I'm not that much of a cheese lover. Oh, I wish not I could really. swap with you. Yeah, I don't know, but when it comes to Christmas, I will indulge in camembert and French bread. Oh, nice. Do, they, do you do that? Yeah. That? I'll make it for you, don't okay. worry. Okay, <laughs> all right. When I met you, Matilda, I was so excited because, um, well, not only do you share a birthday with my husband, which was pretty cool, and that was also the day we had our first meeting, was on your birthday. It was? Yeah. See, that's how much of a workaholic I am. I don't have a birthday. <laughs> oh, yeah, you are a workaholic. You. One thing that I tell people is that my manager is, like, accessible 24-7. <laughs> yes. It's terrible. Yes, to, to the chagrin of my husband. Yes. Globally. I will keep LA time no matter what country I'm in. Yes. It's insane. Uh, we also have the nun thing in common because my mom was going to be a nun which was very exciting when I found that out about you. First other nun story, which we will get into later. And then, but the thing that excited about excited me most was that, you know, I would get to work with someone that, that gets me and understands, like, my complicated backstory and, like, what I bring to, to the table as an actor and a performer. And to work with someone that 
wasn't just going to look at me like a, like a product or someone to be put in a box, but that you, you were excited about me bringing all of my sides to the table. And I met you through Hannah Lee, and she used to honestly tell me how amazing her manager was. I love Matilda, I love my manager. I was like, I need to meet this woman. <laughs> and um, she kindly introduced me to you, and I remember talking to you on the phone the first time. We probably talked for about an hour, and you were also one of the first people that I told I was pregnant. Oh, wow. Yeah. What an honor. <laughs> <laughs> because I felt that comfortable to be able to tell you. Because I also felt like you not only understood me from like an industry, business point of view, but also just personally had a lot in common, living in different countries, working in the industry in different countries, as well as I think I was going through my green card, um, applying for my green card at the time, and you had already been through those big life changes and married an American, which I had just done as well. So we had a lot to talk about. Um, and I just immediately trusted you. I trusted that you got me as a person and as an actor. Yeah, I feel like you are just me 10 years ago, that's all. Really? Yeah, yeah you're, it's pretty crazy how similar our experiences are. Mm. Um, yeah, plus I had, I'm you as a mum seven years ago. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I so know. just ask me anything. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's so nice to be understood and just like without words sometimes as well, just to know that you're going to get it. It's, yeah, really great. Yeah. The, the crazy thing is, though, that you're not that much older than us. You're like, oh, yeah. pretty much our age, <laughs> but she's just an old soul and she's done so much. Yeah. yeah. I Absolutely. appreciate that. So let's go back to the start of the journey of Matilda. Where were you born? I was born in Khartoum in Sudan. I was there until 89, maybe late 88. Um, and that's just because a civil war had broken out and my family sort of lived in that for a few years and then it got pretty bad and we left and we moved to the United Kingdom. So was your family originally from there? So I was born there, my parents were born there, my grandparents were born there. We are as Sudanese as any American who is not indigenous is living in this mm -hmm. country, you know? So like, you know, Sudanese people are African. Like I look more Arab than I do African, but I'm as Sudanese as they are because we go back many generations. And I think whoever had eventually moved to the Sudan, you know, four or five generations before had also been fleeing similar situations as we were doing, leaving in the late 80s. My son is the first to not have anything to flee, like oh, wow. of our, of generations of, of my family. Oh my goodness. Do you remember that? Do you remember? Yeah, I remember. I remember kids with guns stopping you at checkpoints on the streets. I remember it kind of turning because, you know, it's kind of funny when I speak with my family, they speak of the 70s and the 60s in the Sudan with this, like such nostalgia everything was simple they had simple jobs simple life great food great community got to practice their religion all of that kind of thing and then you know late 80s it just kind of went to hell civil, civil war came in president came in brought in the, uh, the sharia law kind of armed kids brought in conscription all of that kind of thing and it became scary it became dangerous so I remember it going from just peace and regular civilian life to curfews and, you know, worrying about like explosions and things like that. 
so I lived in the UK until 1994, Christmas. So basically when my family left, we as a small unit with my mum and dad, we went to the UK. My mother's side of the family went to Australia. By the time we got to about 1994, my mum was missing her family. So she asked if we could move to Australia. So we moved to Australia. I was in seventh grade. I was turning 13. And then I lived there until I was 28 when I moved to the US. Did you manage to, to fit in when you moved to Australia? I was initially definitely an outsider because I, I had a very strong British accent. So to everyone, I was just British. And then I would say somewhere towards the end of my high school life, my accent changed and became mostly Australian. I think Australians still don't quite place me as Australian. British people don't think I'm British and I definitely don't look Sudanese, so. What language did you speak growing up? What was your first language? Or... My first language was Arabic, but funnily enough, I, I went to an international school called KIPS, which is Cartoon International Primary School, and I didn't speak Arabic there because I was amongst, you know, the kids of the consulate families or the, you know, folks who were there for industry or for work, and so I wanted to blend in. Mm -hmm. So they didn't know I spoke Arabic. And mm -hmm. I, I, I kind of regret it because Arabic was taught as a second language in that school. And while my, my language speaking skills were quite strong because I spoke it at home, I, I sort of screwed myself over by not actually learning how to read and write at all. And that's because I was rebelling against that because I was amongst people who... Uh, were foreigners and I wanted to be a foreigner too you know that's that's whatever that's a six-year-old's mentality so mm -hmm. I regret that now as, a, as an older person that I can't read and write and also that I haven't passed on any of those languages to language skills to my son mm. my son doesn't know how to speak a word of Arabic which is regretful yeah I feel that way about Japanese that you know I, there was no interest in Japanese growing up right. and I just kind of put that to the side and wanted to blend in and wanted mm -hmm. to speak Hebrew very well um, and Japanese was like embarrassing because right. it was so foreign and yeah and now I regret it of course now I'm thinking god it would have been did you have the opportunity to learn and speak Japanese in Israel well, not really. Not, not, um, I mean, it was my dad and there, there were a few Japanese people back there where I could have, if I had asked my parents, like, I want to pursue this and I want to learn the language, um, I could have gotten lessons. Right. But when, you know, when you're a kid, it's so, it's hard to navigate, you know. <laughs> and discipline. <laughs> yeah. What, I was into dance and that was it. And that's where, that was the hobby that I, my parents would pay for. But I feel guilty that I, I wasn't more interested mm -hmm. and that I, not only was I not interested, but I would kind of push it away. Right. That's exactly what I did. I did that too. You did? <laughs> my mom used to try and teach my brother and I Punjabi and I was like, oh, I don't want to learn Punjabi. I don't, definitely don't want to do that at the age of like seven or right. something because the same thing. I also wanted to blend in. All of my school friends were all, they were all white and no one spoke Punjabi. I didn't, I didn't need it living in Milton Keynes in England. Yeah, and was was also just preoccupied with dancing. Well. <laughs> I didn't want to do anything else. God, no. But then I did learn it later in, in life, just through living in India. Yeah, crazy that we have those things in common, living yeah. in different places in the world, you know. Well, just to relate it to your, your industry, your job, like your career, do you think it has hurt you that you don't 
that you're not fluent in Japanese. Yes. One hundred percent. Right. Not hurt me, but it's definitely hindered. I'm leaving opportunities on their table. Right. And uh, I've I have been thinking about it lately, like, oh man, should I learn Japanese if I want to work more? Um, but I feel conflicted about it because it's. I would have wanted it to come from a place of wanting to know my roots and my right. background and not from a place of trying to get ahead in my career. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It feels dirty. You right. Because um, I think that's yeah. a common experience. If I, if I sort of think back to my roster, I, I have a client that is equal parts uh, Italian and Greek but only speaks Greek and has never successfully auditioned for an Italian role because she doesn't, even though she looks Italian, she doesn't, speak the language and doesn't necessarily emulate the accent as well as she does the Greek one. So even though she relates mm-hmm. equally to both cultures, um, she's seen as seen as Greek. Yeah. You know, and I kind of have to push no, but she's also Italian. It's it doesn't you know, it doesn't um it's a barrier for sure. Yeah, I feel like we're now coming upon the topic of mm-hmm. our episode and um the the problem is you're gonna be cast the way Hollywood perceives you so if you look Italian or Greek or black or Asian those are the roles you're going to be cast in whether you are that or not potentially and then on the flip side of that is because they're trying to be more politically correct these days they're trying to to cast people that are you know from that origin but then they might not look like mm. the classic Indian yeah, person, the stereotype. the stereotype. So it's tricky navigating that terrain, and um, and I feel like particularly people that are mixed, they kind of fall between the cracks. Mm-hmm. And I have yet to use the fact that I speak fluent Hebrew and that I can bring that Israeli culture, right? You know, into a character. You know, it might be something that comes organically. Like I know of instances where somebody plays the piano, and then a director or writer finds that out and goes, "Oh." Let's put that in there. So that'd be like, hey, I speak Hebrew. I know that's sort of left field. And like, wow, let's see how we can incorporate that. It's sort of an organic meeting of, you know, ideas between yourself and the creative in that moment rather than something that's preconceived of like some, you know, expecting someone to sort of sit at their desk and be like, oh, she's Japanese who speaks Hebrew. Mm. Now go find me this rare bird. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely agree. And I feel like I've been fortunate that that, that has happened to me through having been cast and then them finding out that I speak Hindi to, you know, a certain extent. And also adding in the fact that I'm from England and have experience living in India as well. All of that has like come to the table after I've been cast. Right. And I feel like I'm very fortunate to have had that happen. Yeah. Although you did once get me an audition for a role. They, they were looking like the breakdown was half Japanese, half white, Jewish. Wow. And I was like, oh my God, yeah, <laughs> I'm not Jewish, but I'm pretty much, I'm culturally Jewish. Right. Um, and I was so excited about it. I didn't get it. I didn't get it, guys. I know. <laughs> Who got that? Who got that? I got to know. Who? So you weren't speaking Arabic. How did people perceive you growing up? I think because I'm sort of a little bit ambiguous, I can kind of pass for Greek or Italian or some sort of Mediterranean um, person that I, I think they just 
didn't necessarily place me. I don't necessarily look like an Arabic person does or an Arabic speaker. That's the strange thing about, you know, sort of when you when I see a breakdown and it says, you know, Arab. Arab people come in so many different cultures and we don't necessarily eat the same food or talk in the same accent or even use the same words. You know, there are times where I'll be speaking to an Egyptian person. I'm like, I understood 90% of what you said. I speak to somebody from Lebanon. I'm like, ah, oh, it's about 87% of what you said. I speak to someone from Syria. I'm like, oh, I think I understand less of what you said. And it, and we don't necessarily, even even within food, we call them different things or whatever. So when I see a breakdown, it's just sort of want them to be some sort of Arabic speaker. And it kind of doesn't necessarily matter. It doesn't really matter where they're from. I feel like that's you know, as much progress as we're making, we also still sometimes lump people mm-hmm. into in together. Like Arab, an Arab is an Arab is an Arab. Like no, they're not. Yeah. And I don't necessarily identify as Arab either. Um, like I love a lot of the foods, but I speak mostly a Sudanese version of the language, which is not spoken anywhere else. So when I want to speak or make myself understood with other Arab speakers, I have to adapt to how they are speaking because. They don't use hardly any of the same sort of vernacular that I would organically be using. So it's kind of like, it's interesting, like, you know, I feel like as much progress as we make, we also still kind of paint certain cultures under one brush. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I think maybe in the last few years, we're differentiating specifically amongst Asian cultures. Like, you wouldn't necessarily be hiring now a Japanese person to pretend to be Chinese. They're quite specific. Mm-hmm. But if you're hiring somebody from Syria, uh, it doesn't really matter if they're Egyptian or or Jordanian or wherever. As long as mm-hmm. they have some sort of olive skin, we can throw them in there. And and doesn't even matter if the their accent is wrong. You know, it's it's like we're we're make progress in one place and then not necessarily mm-hmm. in another. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. Yeah, it's like as you're making progress, it is also revealing how faulty and destructive the system is right. to begin with. Right. Yeah, there are insensitivities that people hold in unequal measures. Like, oh, wow, you can't say that about that person, but how come you can say it about French people being whatever? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, we're not, we don't apply the same sort of sensitivities to all cultures as we should, or genders, or, you know. Um, whatever on the spectrum it's just kind of like it feels a little arbitrary at the moment that we're kind of like just sort of splashing around to try and figure it out and and that that might be the process that maybe that might be how humans evolve I don't know that we kind of make a lot of mistakes until we figure it out but we're definitely not there yet do you see that or what do you feel can help break the idea ideas that people have of stereotypes when it comes to the casting process like what can help them see the shades of grey in between, for example, and what they think is like a, I'm going to say, Indian person, for example. Right. I think genuinely it's about access. So if you allow Indian people to tell Indian stories and then they are able to express, well, you know, we actually, there's various languages and various dialects and we don't necessarily all look the same. There's various shades of people, like, yeah. you know, and that's still we're all still Indian, then mm. then maybe people who are at, from outside India can watch and something and be like, oh, I've come away from that with a little bit more educated, a bit more open, you know, open-eyed. Because, you know, I think the same with, like, if there's more authentically Arabic people or mixed 
Arabic people yeah. telling a story and just kind of being like, well, we, this is our experience and this is actually maybe unique to us. Just be, whatever happens in Jordan doesn't necessarily happen, you know, less than five miles across in, in another, you know, in Syria or in Israel. Like our experience is all really different. So I would, I would just say just access, like allowing people to tell their stories. And then that also comes from the top because like, how are you going to tell the story without money? can't just be like, well, I'm an Arab storyteller, so I'm going to go make a movie. Somebody has to trust in you to give you access to funds and believe yeah. in your abilities and that kind of thing and not negate you just because you are not white or female or whatnot, which I think is the, the real problem right now, is that, you know, we don't necessarily have enough people of varying backgrounds telling yeah. stories. Mm-hmm. And at a, at, how would you say this, like at a at a global scale, like mm-hmm. it's all like little stories that don't necessarily like, oh, you make this really great film and it plays in a festival and does I'm never going to see that. Like unless you make this marketing dollars that put it in front of me, I'm not going to know mm-hmm. it exists. Mm-hmm. So like we can do all this sort of like lip service in terms of like giving people opportunities to tell their story, but unless you actually go all the way and market it globally, and we're never going to take take on those projects yeah, i guess and absolutely them. progress is being made the biggest progress we've seen let's say over the past decade has been that we're seeing female females coming in like mm-hmm. at the female writers female directors female producers mm-hmm. so that i think was like the first step and that and then the next step was bringing in you know more diversity mm-hmm. um to the cast oh yeah absolutely i think this is the interesting thing I'll sort of relate it back to something I learned at university, which has stuck with me because it it seems to be like the most truest thing that I've I learned, which was men are given an opportunity to fail and they're given a second chance. Whereas I think women, if you were, if there's a barrier to you in the first place and then you were not given the mentorship or the ability to sort of fail upwards like men are, you're never going to quite reach the same level because you haven't had as much experience behind the camera or had your work critiqued in the same way that men do with sort of more um, leniency, let's Mm -hmm, call it. mm -hmm. And so then I think when you have more women in positions of power or more women as tastemakers and we are able to give that feedback instead of being like, oh, this isn't perfect right away, go away. Mm -hmm. Whereas with a, you know, I think in the past and sort of like the, the white male kind of, experience that we were sort of in and I was oblivious to it by the way I wasn't waking up every day being like I'm under the thumb of the white male (laughs) like I didn't I was clueless to it until other voices started coming out being like well how come you don't see as many female directors did you know that there's only one female director that was nominated for this award Mm -hmm. but in a sea of 25 like no I didn't know you know so it's kind of like shining a light on it and then giving an opportunity for, for people to make mistakes and grow in the same way. Like, you know, I think we coddle boys into... Oh, yeah. And then, of course, some of them are going to get better. They've had more time mm-hmm. at it. Mm-hmm. People have had, you know, people throwing money at them or uh, giving them advice, giving them a mentorship, giving them just time. So, What is it like for you as a manager, managing, you know, people like us who are biracial or you know well I think it's evolved right because when I first started fixtures in 2016 
you know, I, I almost did a sort of a little study of this in my email last night in preparation. I just wanted to type in the word ambiguous into my email mm. to see how often it came up, not just in breakdowns, but also in people who would write to me out of the blue, just find me on IMDb and be like, hey, I'm an ambiguous actor who's just moved to LA. And that was how they would sell themselves. Like I, I can fit anywhere. Compare that to the emails I get now, which is I am a female, non-binary, blah, blah, blah. And they, they list all the things that, that they're finally able to admit that they are. Whereas before it was like, I need to be as bland as possible and I'm a blank slate and yeah. you, you put me into wherever you want me to be and I, I will show up on time. Whereas I think that's the biggest evolution is now like people are like boldly claiming the thing that they were denying of themselves all those years. Yeah, firstly, I totally remember when I was like 18 and starting out, or maybe a little bit older, I remember they wanted ambiguous, mm -hmm. they wanted somebody to look like they could belong anywhere. And I was so desperately like, you know, I wanted to work, I was excited to get out into the world. I was like, yeah, I can I can fit any anywhere, anywhere. And I remember being in girl bands and, um, you know, kind of fitting that brief or we don't quite know where she is, but uh, I mean, where she's from, but, um, but whatever, it fitted me with these, with these two other girls and it was a very sort of manufactured thing. And now, yes, it is completely different to that. But I also feel like this is a very significant step to the movement, hopefully of us eventually maybe not having to label ourselves. Right. You know, like for me and for, I guess, a lot of people, that is where we're trying to right. reach. Um, I think there will always be some nuances, though, right? So I, I distinctly remember, you know, I'm going to say about four years ago, advising a bunch of clients that had that claimed that they could play indigenous roles to take that off their actors access and their biographies. I'm sorry, their um, resumes. resumes because the indigenous community had spoken up because they had had a barrier to like, well, you very rarely tell our stories. And then when you do, you don't cast them, cast us authentically in it. The certain communities told us this is no longer acceptable. And then I can't, you know, be like, well, I have somebody who just looks just like you. So I think she should. So I, I feel like in my role is just kind of to listen and kind of evolve and learn and then maybe at, at some point in the future, like, we will change again. Maybe because there are so many indigenous stories being told, maybe they don't all need to. I don't know. I'm learning too, so I can't say how I, you know, my opinion on it actually changes sometimes, you know. I, I don't think where we are today is going to be where we are in four or five years or where we will ultimately end up long after we're out of this industry. What does it say in terms of what they want I don't know how to say this without sounding maybe crass, like, you know, looks-wise. Even though a breakdown can't necessarily say, or, sorry, a casting director can't necessarily say, where is your client from? Like, what, what they're not allowed to specifically ask. Like, she's definitely Japanese, right? Like, yeah. but they find ways to finesse and get the response because, you know, especially if it's a Japanese director and they authentically want to cast somebody Japanese. I heard that Shonda Rhimes specifically writes you know, stories and she'll, she'll leave the character like open to interpretation. Mm -hmm. She won't give them like last names that are known to be a part of a certain culture so that when they're doing the casting, they won't necessarily look to be like, oh, this is definitely supposed yeah. to be played by a white or a black person. She gives them a detailed character, a full fleshed character and See, that is, that's rare. Out. Yeah, isn't that, that is amazing? incredible and very rare. 
You know, it's kind of funny. I, I have one strong memory of battling a client who turned down an audition because the character name, it was all ethnicities, but the character name was something like Lopez. And he's like, oh, no, they're definitely looking for somebody who's Latino. I'm, I should not audition for this because mm-hmm. he took on the, the role of, like, I'm taking a role from somebody else and I have to be, you know, at my own expense kind of thing. And I was like, well, if you book it, it doesn't become Lopez anymore. It becomes something else. And I actually couldn't convince him even do the audition because he was like, well, the creator really wanted someone of, you know, of color, specifically Latino here. So I have to bow out of this. So. Wow. Was he mixed? Just no, he interest. was a white guy. I, okay. I can see okay. his... Mm. what he's trying to do and I can respect that and I can also see your side of like yeah I think we have to remain sort of flexible and malleable as we navigate each situation right and and I can see how he's like well I want to I don't want to take an opportunity away from someone who is maybe not getting a lot of opportunities Mm -hmm. um right now yeah, but it's let's put it this way though. If the role ultimately went to a different white guy and they named him Johnson, like did you know? Yeah. If casting, if the role was, because you know, for example, you you read scripts all the time, the names are mostly flexible. Or they're code yeah. names. Yeah. Well. A lot of times, it, you know, it also depends. Well, what is it? Is it a short? Is it a feature? Is this a a, a one line role? Is this the lead? You know, I think if it's the lead, it is. It is more important if obviously that's the vision, but if it's a smaller role, if you're just the person like giving the lead a cup of coffee, right? Um, you know, I mean, that's on. I think who should take the responsibility for that is like the casting and the writers and say open ethnicities, period, yes, and not exactly. You know, which clearly in that instance it it was because yeah. he doesn't look Latino at all, and also the role called for all ethnicities. I remember, um, not to be like, oh, I auditioned for a Shonda Rhimes thing, but once I did, and it was great because it wasn't specifically said that she was mixed, right? It wasn't specifically said that she was uh, Indian and also white, but it was just within the writing that that appeared, that revealed itself. And yeah, it's it's so exciting when you do get to play those characters, which I think is another thing that we've been discussing in preparation for this episode. Yeah, when, when you do get to bring, I guess, your own personal experience to a role. And I, I I know that from my experience, I almost feel like I've got this little magic key that I'm like, oh, I'm able to, like, I understand this person or the root of this person. Like, yeah, I've got a lot of work to do, but I get it. I've never booked a role that is mixed race. And I have had a few auditions that were for roles that were mixed but the mixed experience wasn't a part of the writing right it was just like that's that's just who that person is and that's it and then the story is about this person gets murdered and done you know it's it it wasn't that's something i would love to see Mm -hmm. down the road you're starting to see mixed race families portrayed in film and TV right yeah. now. Yeah, commercials in particular. My husband and I were watching something the other day, and it was kind of funny because it's not necessarily just mixed race, but also that's a really attractive. They're kind of mixing it up and like that's a really attractive man with you know a average woman. <laughs> like you know what I mean? Like it's like extremes, and then their kids don't necessarily look. Like, they come from either of them. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I, I watched um, 
the Little Mermaid on the weekend with my son. Oh, yeah, I saw that. And I was really happy to see that not only did the character of Prince Eric, you know, he his mom was black and he was white, and it took 0.2 seconds to be like, yeah. uh, okay, got it. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. I didn't question it at all. Yeah. You Have you, have you seen the Dun- Dungeons and Dragons? No. Um, same thing. It's mixed race, white dad. I'm not sure what the wife was. Mm-hmm. She could she could have been mixed as well. But the daughter is definitely mixed, like looks like she's half white, half black. And yeah, it's the fantasy world. There's dragons and monsters. And yeah, why not have why not? like a mixed family in there Absolutely. too? And it's, it's perfectly yeah. fine. Also in um, The Last of Us. Hmm. Same thing. There's so so that's that's cool to see. There there's there needs to be more faith in viewers that we don't need to be spoon fed everything. You know, I, I even went to go see a play in New York just before I left where the couple was mixed race and the three kids, it was all set mostly in a car, and they were three kids sitting in the back seat kind of rough housing and talking, and they were all like there was a, a Asian boy, a white kid, and a, and a black kid, and their parents, I couldn't even tell you where they were from. And again, it didn't take me out of the story. I wasn't mm-hmm. confused. I didn't wonder. Are they, I, didn't, I didn't have too many questions about it. I just enjoyed what they, you know, brought to the table. And I kind of, it was kind of just complete blind casting, clearly, and I was happy with that. The, in my opinion, possibly the best actor for the role got it. And it didn't it wasn't the best white guy or the best black guy because the parents were black. It was just mm-hmm. the casting process involved meeting everybody and whoever sort of stood out and got the role. And I, I appreciate that. Even as an audience mm-hmm. member, I was like, you know, I think we need to give audiences a little bit more faith. Yeah. You know, we need to that that they can adapt and, and appreciate, you know good storytelling regardless of mm-hmm. you know yeah totally I agree with you um and I think I think there's space for both you know having faith in the audience and not needing to spoon feed and it just you know just that's just the way it is or delving into these stories of maybe what it is like to balance both mm. worlds in a way that does it justice and sheds light on what the reality of it is like. That show Mixed-ish that yeah. we've both been watching, they really, you know, tackle it head on. Mm, they really do. But other than that, I haven't really seen a lot of it mm. on TV. No, I haven't. And, you the, know, I have... mixed experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I do... It was refreshing to watch it. Well, Amy, you know that obviously Fictious is producing a Indian horror film set in yeah. India and you know called Come Tomorrow written by one of our clients did you mm-hmm. happen to read that script yes I did read it and I was really excited to see that the character was mixed race and I was satisfied in because I know when I met Ashwin who was the writer afterwards he he said to me what did you did I bring in the experience of being mixed race in a good way can you tell me and I and I said yeah you know that there wasn't any part of me that cringed or anything like that because that's really the catalyst for the story that takes our protagonist to india is her place in the world and her confusion of it because of her her not quite understanding well i I feel american but i'm also indian and they're sort of like conflicting within me no i felt like he really put his shoes himself in the shoes of of someone who is mixed you know and is straddling both worlds yeah. I mean, look, that that is somewhat his experience anyway, because he is Australian. 
Indian, born in India, Australian accent, sort of doesn't necessarily look Indian to everybody that thinks they they're what an Indian person should look like. So it's kind mm-hmm. of like I think there's a lot of the character of Alison in in Ashwin. Ashwin historically has had trouble auditioning for being cast as an Indian person because he's not considered Indian enough. He's yeah. more likely to book an Arab character. Um, Isn't that crazy? Then he he's is an Indian. Action. Yes. He's fully Indian. Both parents are Indian. He, and no one will cast him as an Indian. Because they're, they're maybe this is, maybe they're, you're right, then their stereotypical assessment of what an Indian person should be is that they are of darker skin. And he is more ambiguous. And he does look potentially more mixed, even though he's not. Um, so I would say most of his resume is really playing a character where ethnicity doesn't matter. And if it does matter, he's not Indian. He's he's probably some sort of Arab character. Yeah. Um, which is disappointing because, you know, I think that's why also one of the reasons why take it into your own hands. You write your own story. So he's well, exactly. he's writing. He's written himself a role. He is an in, he's playing an Indian person in a movie, <laughs> and hopefully that's sort of a way to kind of educate people. Like Indian people come in all colors oh I love that this just speaks to maybe the problem that mixed race people do face because even within their own by their own people yeah by their own people yeah yeah it's coming not just from ignorant people but it can come from the the country you're from it can come from there Mm -hmm. too which is interesting I I do think it all comes back to what you were saying earlier which is that trust listen People are always going to criticize. Yeah. There's always going to be someone who's going to say, no, she shouldn't have done this or that. But overall, if we can trust that the viewers get it and and that we're really sweeping them up in a story and it's about that and convince the people at the top who are funding all of this. Right. Because you know? I don't think necessarily it's a filmmaker's responsibility to placate somebody with a prejudice because if I don't want to see a mixed race couple on screen or I don't think this white girl would date that black guy then how dare you put it on screen isn't that the whole point of stories Mm -hmm. is to take you beyond the world you know and expose you to other worlds out there Mm -hmm. to be able to step into the shoes of someone else Mm -hmm. and see how life looks like from their perspective and also, they have enough content anyway that satisfies their their perspective. Like, it's not like all storytelling at all times is incredibly diverse and, you know, forward thinking and all. There's, if you yeah. have bigoted views or you're not quite ready to accept a mixed race couple or a mixed or LGBT love story, there's so there's, much yeah. content yeah. Yeah. that you, you can just ignore the yeah. other stuff and just watch the millions of other yeah, go and viable, knock out. Yeah. very well-made, brilliant stories that do satisfy your worldview. Yeah, like watch anything before 2010. Yeah, <laughs> go for it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of content out there. I think there's enough for all of us. We don't need to acquiesce to anyone's one worldview. Yeah. Mm. So we're kind of coming to an end here, but yeah. I have to say, I'm itching to hear about this nun situation. Oh, yeah. Let's go back to that. Very important. we okay. got to know what happened, because you're not a nun. I'm not <laughs> a nun. And between the age of, like, I'm going to say six, maybe five, until I was 17, 
I thought I could be. Um, I was raised in a very religious, not not religious in sort of like the Amer- what you would think an American religious family is, just a sort of a very standard Catholic family. And my father had, he had a little bit of influence in the Sudan in terms of he was quite an industrious person, you know, factories and employed a lot of people. So he had, you know, sort of access to things outside of the norm, let's say. So when Mother Teresa came to the Sudan and sort of wanted, I believe it was like an audience with the president or with someone higher up to sort of say, hey, can we talk a little bit about like what's happening out here from from a humanitarian perspective? Um, she, I think the story is that she went to the bishop of the, in the Sudan of our church and he sort of said, go speak to my father and let's see if... <laughs> you know, we could kind of figure out a way for, you know, you to have an audience with the people you want to speak to so you could sort of, you know, because the Sudan was obviously devolving in a place of war, look after people. So Mother Teresa came over to our home. Stop right there. Can you just (laughs) say that one more time? The last line? That Mother Teresa came to our home? (laughs) Yeah. Mother Teresa came to your home. Yes. And my really distinct memory, it was one really strong, because my dad mostly like cannibalized her time. But uh, I, the one, (laughs) because, you know, like I was a little kid. I, what was I? I was also oblivious to who she was or Mm. any of it. To me, it was just a nun. And we also have nuns in the family. So I was just kind of like, Not a nun. Just another nun. Not a sweet nun. Yeah. So she came into our home and my one big memory is that she didn't want to sit in our living room she said you know like I kind of you know formal living room I I just want to sit maybe the foot of your bed so she sat at the foot of my mom and dad's bed and I sat next to her with my little legs not touching the floor just kind of dangling and she was telling me about herself and her work and sort of said you know when you're older would you join our order in Calcutta and I said yes so because I said that, I felt like I had to hold up to what six-year-old Matilda had promised because then I would have lied to Mother Teresa. <laughs> so I held that in my head until I met a young man named Adam. And then all of my desires to be a nun left my head. <laughs> and I realized, Adam. Well, no, I, well, I just realized, well, I'll just be a good person. How about that? I don't mm. necessarily need to be a nun I just won't, I will just do unto others what I want to do to me. And strangely, like, I'm now, I'm now atheist. Like, I have no religion whatsoever. So I, it's kind of interesting that I went complete full circle on it. But I also think because if you grow, if you grow up in a really strict Catholic family, or really maybe any re- religion, you either follow that or you rebel entirely. Yeah. And I rebelled entirely. And funnily enough... All of my cousins of my generation all voluntarily still go to church, and that's because their parents left it up to them. Like, are we going? You know, get your shoes on if you're coming. And they were like, all right, we're coming. Whereas with my family, it was like, you must go. So it became homework, and then I rebelled yeah. against it. Yeah. And then, and then I, you married a Jewish guy. Then I married a Jewish guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of, yeah, absolutely. Mm. I can't believe you met Mother Teresa, first of all. And that she, you... was, she was lovely. Really, really lovely. Aww. Yeah, and in th- in thanks to my dad, yeah, she was she was wearing this miraculous medal, uh, what is known as a miraculous medal, which is a this little silver 
uh, it depicts Mary and there's little stars above her. And she obviously wanted to thank my dad for his help. She sort of took it off her neck and, and put it on my dad. And that, you know, my dad sort of treasured that. And he made a replica of it and put the other one in safe and wore the replica because he was like, you know, that's the special, the special one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it was like a really sweet experience, you know. Like she yeah. was really lovely to me. She was very grateful to my family. I hope... You know, she was able to achieve something. Obviously, Sudan is not like a... It's not the safest of places. So she what she was trying to do out there was really bold. Mm. So, yeah, it was a lovely experience. Mm. Hopefully, I, she's not disappointed in me. I no. think we can both say that you are a good person. Yeah. And you, you're like an oasis for us in this desert of an industry. Yeah. And Ultimately, I'm a people person. I always have been. I think that's why I... I think that's why I'm doing this. Like I genuinely like people. I'm I want to be a part of your success and I also want to grow with you. That's sort of my my personality and thankfully that matches with what a manager should should be. That's um I think that's important. And unfortunately, you know, I don't think necessarily that everyone is always has this sort of unfettered access to their reps because no. they there's these barriers of of and also sometimes I think people have way too many clients or you know they don't necessarily click with all their clients I genuinely only take on people who I think I'm going to be at your weddings I'm going to know your kids I'm going to be you know part of your life Mm -hmm. for as long as you'll have me and that's you know I'll just say one last thing about you there was this like um evening where I met some other actors you rep and every actor was like Oh, she makes she makes you feel like you're her only child. Oh. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, all these other people feel the same way that I do. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's so cute. I don't know how you do but that. That's, that's another amazing quality. Yeah, yeah, to make each person feel like they're the only person on your radar. Yeah. I, th- I, I think it's just because I genuinely like the people on my roster. I also care about fixtures. I want us to all grow together. So yeah. it doesn't mm-hmm. serve me or you. If this is an acrimonious relationship, like I want us all to be successful, I want us all to be working. Yeah. Um, and it's better that we do it. It's better that we do it in a partnership than, you know, independently. You're over there and I'm over here, and occasionally we meet in the middle. Like, no, let's just stay in the middle and go together. Yeah, which is a great approach, I think, for the whole industry to have. You know, let's see people as people first, not as labels or ideas that we have, prejudice. Um, and let's work together and lift everybody up. I want to be an artist you cannot categorize at all. You can't put a box around me. You can't put anything around me. Angel Hayes. Pop smiled. Son, the more people I meet, the less good I get at labeling them. That's a wisdom I hope you acquire. That's by Christopher Scotton. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Matilda. It was thank you so having me. special having you here. It was. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pop my podcast cherry. <laughs> <laughs> How did it feel? It's lovely. You guys are. I love. I love this. It's a great topic, but you also have a wonderful chemistry. So I'm happy to be here. We do like each other. We do. She's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've. I feel like there's so much more to say. We've scratched the surface of this. We yeah. we are gonna have more um, episodes dedicated to this topic. We have a bunch of like funny stories and stuff, but I feel yeah. like we've run out of time today. 
Um, but uh, stay tuned for more on this topic. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. And if you have any stories or you want to write into us about anything, um, our email address is on the show notes. We'd love to hear from you. Please like, share, check out our Instagram page. Repost, retweet, yes. all the reads. Yes. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye. This episode was produced by us, music by Matthias Kunzli.